Welcome, Robert Jarvinpaw. This is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm very excited today to have a man that we've received letters from over the years, but I've never met face to face. And he is Professor Emeritus at the University of Albany. He's also been a professor at the University of Alaska and a Fulbright professor at the University of Helsinki. And his bio on the U Albany page begins with these words, and I'm hoping he will unpack them for us. <laughs> it says he is, <clears throat> let me see if I can get all these phrases, an ecologically oriented sociocultural anthropologist. So welcome and tell us what that means. Okay. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, I'm a great admirer of the enterprise, so it's uh, an honor to be here. I, uh, m I guess most of my career I've spent looking at uh, uh, communities that I would say live in extreme environments or difficult environments where uh, uh, the kind of conditions uh, throw into relief uh, the adjustments people have to make, in other words, uh, Far Arctic uh, northern environments has been one area that I've worked in, and there uh, the question always is, well, how do people, uh, you know, make a living and make do with very scarce resources when there's not a lot available? So, uh, you know, ecologically oriented social anthropology is uh, a way of uh, uh, trying to understand how people. Uh, how people's cultures and their social life <coughs> are uh, fitted to the kind of uh, physical and biological environments that they find themselves in. So what started you on this path? How, how did all this begin? Uh, I think I always had an interest in, uh, in the Arctic, in the far north, going way back when I was uh, a kid. I read uh, Jack London and uh, <laughs> uh, other, uh, <clears throat> you know, travelers' accounts and explorers' accounts, and that kind of fascinated me. And uh, when uh, I was uh, finishing up my undergraduate career, I uh, decided I'd, I'd hitchhike to Alaska just to kind of see what what things were like up there. And uh, that kind of whetted my appetite for the North, and so I decided, well. If I were to become an anthropologist, I would, uh, you know, concentrate on people who lived in in these far northern uh, environments, and. Uh, and you did. I, I guess I I did for many years. <laughs> and one of the things too that's fascinating is that your wife Hetty Jo Brumbach is also an anthropologist and has shared in together you've. You've done a lot of research and publication as a team. Tell us a little about how that came yeah. to be. Uh, yeah, we have. Uh, well, I came out here to New York uh, from Minnesota back in 1973 as a new young faculty member at, uh, at uh, University at Albany. And uh, Hetty Joe at that time was finishing up her graduate work. and. Uh, we found that we had many interests in common. In fact, we, we, we married. <laughs> uh, and uh, 
discovered that well, it'd be interesting to kind of uh, do teamwork with a cultural anthropologist and an archaeologist. And uh, we started that kind of work by looking at uh, the remains of uh, recently occupied settlements uh, in the north. In other words, these were uh, small hunting encampments and uh, village sites that had been occupied in the 19th century up till the mid 20th century and then were abandoned uh, due to uh, economic change in the area. People were starting to live in larger uh, settlements and so they were abandoning these more distant uh, far-flung encampments and so we started uh, documenting these uh, historical archaeological sites by mapping them and doing artifact inventories but also bringing uh, people from the villages. These were Chippewyan Indian people who had actually constructed those settlements and lived in them, some of whom were still living, although elderly. Uh, some were middle-aged, and we would bring them to the sites as we were documenting them, and they would explain to us the history uh, of the occupations and often tell us who lived in particular uh, dwelling remains and uh, also the meaning of the materials. Uh, this was kind of a big light bulb went on in our head when we found that you know, here we were not just looking at archaeological remains, but having the people who, uh, in many cases, constructed these remains tell us what they meant. So we were, it was kind of, for us, a living archaeology. Yeah, it sounds like such a common sense idea, but I was reading reviews about some of your work and just that. It was a light bulb. People were saying, <laughs> what a wonderful idea. And I just last week did a story talking to the curator at the State Museum on a new exhibit they're putting together from 1600 remains in the Hudson Valley. And they're just trying to do detective work on these little shards. And here you had living people that could inform you about them. It's a great idea. Yeah. And by the way, we really enjoyed your article on Michael Lucas. That was we thought one of the best articles we've seen explaining what archaeologists do, you know, to the well, public. thank so. you. <laughs> um, but I just want to explore, too, this one um, seems to be a fan of yours, Liam Frink, who said you and your wife's scholarship is what inspired him. And he talks about um, being a gendered team has surely been valuable. So could you just comment on what, on what that means? Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess uh, back when I first started my, my work, which is in the, around 1970, um, I, and at that time I was not doing ethnoarchaeology, I was doing, I, I was basically documenting living communities and trying to understand their, their livelihood patterns, and so I, I used a technique which some cultural anthropologists call uh, active participation. You know, most, most anthropologists uh, agree that participant observation is the, the basis of their methodology, that you try to observe as you participate in the lives of other people as much as you can. And, uh, but there's a spectrum from full participation to full observation, and, and 
my technique was, as I call it, active participation is to uh, not just passively observe, but try to uh, perform some of the same behaviors that you're that the people you're living with are performing. And I, I went about this by becoming a, a team member on uh, hunting and fishing teams, uh, what, what the Chippewan call sitseni, which means partner. So I was a partner for uh, my first year of field work with several different uh, hunting and fishing teams who moved uh, across the landscape over an annual cycle, fishing, hunting, trapping, uh, for their families, and uh, in later years, I realized that well, as much as this was a very revealing technique, uh, it did have a gender bias in the sense that I was working largely with men, all male teams who uh, would move in and out of the villages on their annual rounds, and I had less contact with women, although I did interview. Uh, uh, many women in in the village in the village context. So, uh, to make a long story short, uh, when Hetty Joe Brumbach and I started our ethno archaeological work, one of our goals was to uh, make the work more gender sensitive and and to sort of capture the uh, the behavior and the thoughts and the feelings and the sentiments of both men and women. And of course, having a you know, one of the team members being a woman <laughs> yeah, helps a lot. a lot because it gives you more access. I mean, it's in some societies, it's very difficult for a man to get a really good inside access to women's lives. Uh, you often do need a woman and vice versa. So uh, we consciously tried to make our work, uh, not, not initially, this took many years for us to kind of come to this, but eventually we uh, uh, felt that there was a need for a, a better portrayal of what women actually did in some of these northern societies, because for many, many years in anthropology, there's been kind of a, uh, almost a cliched assumption that, uh, you know, man the hunter, woman the gatherer. As if, you yes, know, that's men, the assumption I had. Yeah. So tell us, um, tell it's, us it's, what's the truth. It's kind of a worldwide <laughs> assumption. Yeah. And uh, it is perhaps true for some of the uh, temperate and tropical hunter-gatherer societies where uh, there's a higher dependency on plant foods. So in those societies, women do do a lot of gathering of food uh, uh, resources, uh, whereas men may do more hunting. But the farther north you move and the less plant food available, it, it begs the question, well, if there, aren't, if there aren't many plants to eat and people are, are largely subsisting on uh, hunted game and, and uh, fish, uh, then what, and if men do all the hunting, then what are women doing? So what, what are women yeah, doing? Yeah, what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> so we thought, well, let's start documenting this in a more systematic way. And we discovered, at least for the Chippewan and many of their Cree, uh, Cree neighbors in northern Canada, that, uh, in fact, women do hunt. Uh, they may not hunt large game animals like caribou and moose as often as men do, but they certainly cooperate in hunting them with men. And in fact, women do a lot of the uh, 
hunting of smaller game animals like rabbits, uh, uh, beavers, muskrats. Uh, they do a lot of the fishing. And the other thing is that they do a lot of the processing. Uh, they, they are the main butchers and processors of animals that men bring in, and they're the ones that convert them into food products and convert the uh, hides to clothing. And they're all also usually the main uh, storage experts who store this material and who then distribute it to uh, friends and neighbors and relatives. So we came to the conclusion that uh, there's been a kind of a false dichotomy of uh, man the hunter, woman the gatherer, and also a uh, misunderstanding of what hunting is. It's, hunting has been narrowly construed as the the moment of dispatch, you know, the actual killing of an animal. That's that's seen as hunting by a lot of scholars, and I think it it comes from a kind of a Western sport hunting bias. Where you have a gun and you shoot. Yeah, and the thing is, hunting is a very complex activity. It involves a lot of, especially if you're hunting for a living, for your food, it involves a lot of uh, pre-kill logistics in terms of setting up where you're going to be, preparing camps, often preparing uh, barriers and nets to capture migrating animals. A lot of this is done with, with by women and men. And then... Hunting involves a lot of post-kill uh, processing of the animals and converting into food products, distributing, storing the food for long periods. A lot of that's dominated by, by women. So if you look at this full spectrum of activities as quote-unquote hunting, not just the moment of the kill, mm -hmm. but all of it, well, then women are as equally involved or more in many cases than men. And that's been our kind of revisionist <laughs> yeah. uh, view of hunting uh, worldwide, you know, and uh, we're what? trying to, trying to uh, get away from this kind of sport hunting cliche that a lot of anthropologists in the past have depended on, I think, uh, especially m more so archaeologists probably who don't uh, look at living systems but are, are depending mostly on uh, archaeological material and, and then trying to come up with models about how people hunt and uh, there hasn't been enough attention paid to what uh, the world's living hunting hunter-gatherers actually do in their daily lives so that's that's how we, we got into the gender uh, analysis and we started developing um, uh, a methodology which, which we, we've borrowed and modified from other people called task differentiation analysis where you, you come up with a list of tasks and you ask both men and women uh, what materials do you use to accomplish this task, when do you do it in terms of you know, seasonality or, or times of the year, uh, who do you do it with in terms of uh, what relatives or do you have teams, uh, what's the division of labor, and uh, so let's see, I'm all, I'm forgetting our list here, but there's time, uh, materials, personnel, and uh, I know there was a fourth item which I can't. 
Well, that's okay. The idea is it gives you a grid in which to kind of plot these different aspects so that people can understand. Well, I'd be interested to know personally what it was like for you and your wife to arrive. I mean, were you immediately accepted by the Chippewa or whichever group you were living with? Or did you have trips earlier to kind of acquaint yourself or how, how did that work and yeah yeah it, it well, that's a very good question uh, the acceptance um we started this this gender business um excuse me by working in in communities that we had worked in before on other projects and that i had worked on way back in the early 70s uh a solo and i spent a year there initially and uh so by the time we started the gender work in the uh, this would have been early '90s, actually, uh, we were fairly well known in these communities. Uh, I mean, in many ways, it was like going home because. <laughs> oh, nice! So you're being there. You don't think changed how they acted around you. They they accepted you. Did you live in like what kind of housing and? Well, the, when I first worked there solo, uh, I, I moved around with these hunting trapping teams in, in their, the kinds of tents that they used. Uh, and then periodically, it would, they would come back to a centralized village where people lived in cabins. And, uh, but a lot of the uh, hunting fishing activity was a, a highly mobile uh, way of life where they would move from one base camp to another uh, each time re-erecting their tents and uh, so I lived that way for for a good year then when we came back for the archaeological work we uh, we had to uh, go out with uh, our consultants we would get middle-aged and older men and uh, they would take us to uh, places they remember from childhood which were often Dozens, or in some cases, as much as 100, 150 kilometers away from their current village, and uh, we lived in tents and we moved by canoe, you know, from one site to another, documenting them. This this had to be in the summer, when you know you could see things on the ground, and then we would come back in the colder months and then show our maps and our other documentation to people in the village, uh, usually older people, to see what they remember, if they could like link up our uh, site maps with the memories of where they lived when they were, were children or young adults. And, uh, and then we would invite them to uh, share any memories they had of what life was like at those particular locations. You know, it could have been 50 years ago, 70 years ago. Uh, Prior to the modern period of uh, uh, settlement centralization, back then people were still uh, very, very mobile, moving over huge territories in their hunting, trapping, trading uh, ventures. Um, in fact, that, that was one of the things that really drew me to this area is that these people uh, probably have one of the lowest population densities for any, any hunter, hunter-gatherers in the world. They, the Chippewan, uh, if you take all Chippewan people, they occupy an area roughly the size of Texas. 
and uh, the particular band of Chippewa I worked with who were called the Kesyotene, which means Aspen House people. Aspen House was the term they, they gave to the first trading post that was put up by Europeans back in the 1770s, uh, built of logs or Aspen logs. And so they became known to themselves as the Aspen House Chippewaan or Kesyotene. These people never numbered much more than 150 to 200 people in the 19th to mid 20th century, but they were occupying an area the size of New England, you know, the size of Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts put together. Oh my goodness. So it gives you an idea of like the immense amounts of landscape that they moved over to make to make a livelihood, to make their living. Did you speak, do you speak their language? Uh, very rudimentary. Yeah, uh, but you were able to communicate with them how? Well, when I first started working there in the early 70s, uh, most people over, let's say, about 40 years of age uh, spoke mostly Chippewaan, some of them a little bit of English, a little bit of French. Uh, most people under 40s were bilingual in Chippewaan and uh, uh, more English. So you and could use them as translators I, when you were getting the stories from the older people? I would basically use the younger folks as translators, yeah. and uh, I did try to learn as much Chippewaan as I could, but it's a, I will say it's a very tough language for an English speaker. It's uh, got the largest number of consonantal phonemes probably of almost any language known, documented. So it's, it's very difficult to pronounce certain words, at least for me. Well, you just said Aspen House, and it was startling. Well, <laughs> Whatever that word was, I couldn't reproduce it. It was... Yeah, yeah well, Caissier, Caissier means uh, Aspen House, and then the uh, uh, suffix otine means people. Now, in, in their Chippewa language, dene means people, so they... The, the general term for themselves is dene, or sometimes dene soline, but if you want to, it just means people or real people, but if you want to refer to a particular group of Chippewaan, like these people, then they have their own uh, special terms. So Kesyotene is what they call themselves to distinguish themselves from other Chippewaan, like uh, farther north, the Ethan Eldili Dene, or caribou-eating people or the, uh, uh, there are about maybe six, seven major regional bands of Chippewa, each with their own ethnonym. And, uh, well, one of the things the reviewers kept complimenting you and Hetty Joe Brombach on was your, the way you wrote was accessible. It was, a, you know, something that, people could understand. And I just wonder if you could talk a little about the process of writing your books. The one that kept coming up when I was <laughs> kind of scurrying <laughs> over the internet was Northern Passage. And apparently the way you portrayed yourselves almost is, you know, naive listeners. Uh -huh. um, and just why you adopted that posture and how you look at your writing. Well, that's a very, that's an excellent question. Uh, um, it's interesting that in anthropology and maybe other social sciences too that uh, for many years probably up to the 1980s or so uh, there wasn't a lot of self-reflection uh, you would write your reports and your uh, 
journal articles and books and so forth, uh, pretty much for a um, professional audience with a lot of uh, insider jargon and uh, uh, technical and formal language that often was not very accessible to a general reader, you know. And uh, but in the 80s, with kind of the, the rise of postmodernism in, in literature and many fields, anthropologists started to become uh, more, uh, you know, aware of the way that they were writing and uh, uh, the whole issue of accessibility. Should this literature just be for professionals or should... Uh, not that people did not popularize things in the past. I mean, many people have uh, written uh, articles and books that tried to take the professional, the formal stuff or technical stuff and make it more readable for a general audience. But uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, there grew this trend toward uh, what some people call experimental ethnography or reflexive ethnography, where one tried to uh, give the reader a sense of uh, what the author was going through in doing the work, you know, what kind of feelings, uh, difficulties, to make it much more transparent rather than being this kind of distant commentator. So I, I decided I, I would try to take my earlier work and write something that was more reflexive. And uh, so I wrote Northern Passage in, I think that was the late 90s. And uh, it was meant to try to give college students uh, primarily, but also just general readers, a sense of what does it feel like to go live in another society, a very alien society for the first time as a, as a neophyte, you know, because when I first went there in 71, I was a graduate student. I had never done much of this kind of work before. I was going solo. Um, I first had to be accepted. And this community at that time was very isolated. There were no roads into it yet. Only way to get there was by bush plane or canoe or dog team. Um, and so I, I wrote this book to try to show all the emotional, the, the emotional roller coaster you go through just to uh, try to do your work, uh, let alone get any kind of meaningful results. And uh, so I portrayed myself basically as a child. You know, you're, you go into the field for the first time and you're like an uneducated child where your uh, consultants or informants around you are trying to educate you trying to make try to make you a, a socially competent person in their in their view, point of view and um, I just love that metaphor because really to see yourself as a child means that you're open to learning but you're not yeah. judgmental about this other society that your bush plane has <laughs> dropped you into and well ideally that's how you should be I yeah. mean I think a lot of us don't accomplish it I mean a lot a lot a lot of the time you feel very frustrated and that you're, you know, the work is not going anywhere, you're being closed off from things. Uh, but I think the, the real uh, lesson, perhaps, is that ethnography, unlike a lot of other 
social science methods uh, requires an immense amount of time. You can't just go somewhere and do a survey like for a week and hand out a questionnaire. You have to actually live among people. Yeah, you also can't go home. You, you, <laughs> most of us go to work and then have yeah. a safe place that we're familiar with. You don't go home at night. You're, you're yeah. there and it's like this. You immerse yourself for a long time and it's like a subjective soaking. You're soaking in other people's values and worldview by being there for a long time so to the point where it starts to become to feel a little bit natural to you you know until you get to that point uh, where you can feel sort of comfortable and in, in people's behavior and their thoughts start to seem natural to you you know you're probably not there yet so I think it takes at least a year uh, sometimes maybe more to get to that point and before meaningful results can come come through. Now, if you're using other techniques, like mostly questionnaires or uh, mostly uh, directed interviewing, maybe not, but, but true ethnography for an anthropologist, you have to have that as the platform, is that long-term immersive soaking. On top of that, you can build other techniques like interviewing, uh, questionnaires, mapping, photography, filming, re tape recording, but you got to have that that platform first. Uh, otherwise, once you have that platform, is it very hard for you to come back home <laughs> and <laughs> and re reintegrate to the world that really is yours? Or it can be. Yeah, a yeah. lot of people do talk about the reverse culture shock. You know, after after you've been in the field for a year or longer, and then you come home, there's almost as much culture shock going the other way. Uh, and depression. I mean, you, I felt for a long time sort of depressed because uh, what was, uh, f became familiar to me was no, no longer there, you know, and uh, I had developed an alter ego there. I was referred to as, uh, I have a Chippewa name, uh, what what is it? Das Lose, Das Lose, which means little beard or little bearded one. <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> and uh, so when I got back to uh, Minneapolis, I was no longer Das Lose, which depressed me. <laughs> and you also there's also the daunting task of you know if you've got this huge pile of field notes, and uh, you're confronted with the problem of making sense out of it. You know what does it all mean? You have to start sorting through the data and picking out meaningful patterns so that you can write up something that's uh, going to make sense to uh, other anthropologists. And uh, that takes time to learn how to do. For, you know, the first time you're confronted with that, I think it's a very, uh, uh, seems like an overwhelming job. You know, but the more you do it, like anything, I mean, then the more familiar it becomes and uh, uh, the easier it is to do more of that kind of work, I think. Well, having uh, spent a lifetime with this, are there things that you can extrapolate from these societies that you were part of that apply to the human condition at large? I mean, you talk about culture shock going both ways, but are there commonalities as human beings that well, we share? Another, another great question. Yeah. Uh, well, that's probably the, <clears throat> probably the grand question. 
in anthropology <laughs> or social science generally is, you know, um, <clears throat> are there universals? And there, there sure, certainly are. I mean, we all struggle to, you know, make a living, uh, to support ourselves, to uh, have a meaningful family life, to uh, uh, find meaningful friendships, to understand the, the, the great cosmic questions of death, birth, everything that happens in between. You know, all societies are confronted with that. Uh, handling conflict within communities and between communities. These are all universal problems. So, but so the real question then becomes, well, how do the world's different societies and cultures handle those universal problems? Because we know we're not all alike culturally. We differ greatly. So we've come up with different solutions to handle different, you know, similar problems, basically. And uh, um, you know, one of the big questions for anthropology is, well, why, why do people's behavior differ in different times and places? We're all the same species. We've all evolved from the same background over the last hundred thousand years or so. We're all Homo sapiens. We have the same biogenetic structure. So why aren't we all the same? Why, why does our behavior differ so radically at different times and in different places? Why do our thoughts and sentiments differ so radically in different times and different places? That, that's the big question. That's, that's what we try to do in anthropology is answer that cross-cultural question. And some people put the emphasis on you know, material conditions. Well, it's it's basic ecological and economic constraints that make people different, make people's cultures different. You know, these people have to make a living by migrating over huge distances to hunt caribou. These people uh, are farming a very rich alluvial delta and can remain sedentary and build up complex cities. Other people put the emphasis on ideology, you know, that there's endless potential for thinking differently, having different beliefs, developing different religious systems, and which has nothing to, some people think, have nothing to do with uh, the material. Um, but I, I'm one of those anthropologists who thinks that they're connected, that all these things are connected, that there's, you can't really separate easily material from the spiritual. So belief systems relate to physical realities. My bias is, yes, yeah. that they do. It may be difficult to sort it out sometimes, but if you look carefully, uh, you know, religions don't develop in a vacuum. They don't just come out of nowhere. If you look at the infrastructure of the society, there are reasons why people think certain things. Uh, or social structure. Why, why do some societies have a matrilineal descent where you trace your kinship through the mother's side rather than the father's side of the family? Uh, or why do some societies, are, why are some highly stratified with complex class systems or caste systems and others seem fairly egalitarian? Um, I think you, ultimately you can trace a lot of this back to uh, you know, the e economic and ecological infrastructure, uh, but then getting from the social structure to religion, it's, it's a tougher jump. 
I mean, it's, it takes more, <laughs> yeah. more subtle analysis, perhaps. But these are things that are debated uh, back and forth all the time between scholars. You know, some, they don't like the materialist emphasis, and others don't like the ideological emphasis. They, you know, they go one way or the other, and there aren't too many that call for a uh, synthesis, you know, that you should put them together. And that's you. Well, I, I'd like to think so. I'm not saying I'm, I'm successful, <laughs> but I think that's the way to go. Because, you know, if you look at any system, whether it's a biological system or a, a social system, a cultural system, eventually you'll find that a lot of different parts are related to each other. They go together some way. It uh, doesn't mean that some part of the system is always going to be inaccessible or seem chaotic, but uh, more often than not, it seems to me that there are, uh, there are connections between things that seem unrelated if you look, if you spend time looking. Um, at least I think there would be a payoff if you keep looking and not just assume that, well, we don't, you know, if, if I'm a, re a scholar of religion, I don't have to worry about the economy or uh, material infrastructure. Or if I'm interested in uh, hunting and gathering, I, don't, I really don't have to worry about uh, people's spiritual beliefs. You know? What is the spiritual belief of the Chippewan when you were there? What, what is there? Uh, well, they've been practicing Catholics since the mid-19th century. Missionaries came in in the 1840s, uh, it was slow to contact a lot of these folks, so people where I lived weren't uh, part of that sphere probably till the 18, I mean firmly in uh, in the missionary system probably till the late 19th century, but uh, their traditional belief system was based on uh, uh, personal relationships with spirit, uh, with animal spirits. And a lot of it was tied up with hunting so that uh, one tried to dream about the animals that one was pursuing. And uh, there's a lot of emphasis put on interpretation of dreams. This is still true today. It, it's, it's become synthesized with Catholicism in some ways. But if you go back, you know, before the mid-19th century, um, you would pay very close attention to your dreams about animals and then if you pursued and captured a particular animal there were a lot of rules about how you treated that the remains that you, you didn't just take it and eat it right away that there, you often uh, performed gestures of respect to the animal you would often uh, and this is still true today put the remains of the, uh, the skeleton after you've butchered it, you put it in the, in the crotch of a tree as a gesture of respect to the spirit of the animal. Um, sometimes, like with beavers, you throw the, uh, the remains after eating into a nearby stream to uh, uh, encourage the reproduction of the animal. Reintroduce it to the water. Well, that yeah. seems to fit perfectly with your idea that economy and spiritual <laughs> it 
spheres well, there, go together. There's because, a clear link there. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Uh, and um, well, another example would be um, uh, in, uh, in in trapping, even, which is of course an introduced fur trapping is a, an introduced European, you know, as part of the fur trade came in. Um, in that region in the late late 1700s, um, if you're building a horseshoe pen for a fox or a lynx um, or a fisher, when you put the bait stake in the back, the bait stake uh, is something that holds, whoops, sorry, <laughs> holds a little uh, tuft of grass which has been soaked in uh, uh, beaver castor the, the, from the castor glands it's, a, it's an attractant and uh, before you, the very last thing you do when you're making your, your set for, the, for an animal is to, to thrust the, the bait stake into the into the pen and, uh, but before doing that you, you make an arc you, you try to touch it to the branch of an overhanging tree in a broad arc, and then thrust it very sharply in the ground. And uh, the men that I traveled with told me that that was something they were taught, usually by older male relatives, who said that they had learned that from uh, famous, not famous, but um, um, what's, what's the right respected? word? Respected? I guess respected would be a good, a good word. I respected uh, 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 magicians years ago. Magician is kind of their English word for uh, uh, what they would call a, um, a shadow person. Uh, in, what, in their language, they say enkonze, enkonze dene, which means a uh, uh, shadow person or powerful person. It's a person who has a lot of uh, supernatural power. And uh, in, in other cultures, you might call them shamans, but in Chippewan society, there's not a real strong distinction between people who have power and those don't. Everybody has some power, but to, to, uh, in kind of respect to these older magicians, you that's how you, you, you make your set. So, uh, um, just the idea of magic with trapping is so uh, uplifting. <laughs> I am so sorry that our half an hour is long passed over because I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface. Uh -huh. You have so many, not just overarching ideas, but details that root those ideas. It's Well, thank you for saying that. I, but you, you ask excellent questions. So, I mean, if you hadn't <laughs> asked those the right questions, this might not have seemed very informative. Well, I thank you so much. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you, Melissa. It's uh, great to be here.